Good evening and good day everyone. Welcome to episode 23 of the Ask Abhijit show. Today we discuss Indian history which I think is everyone's favorite topic. So let's get right into it. I have a very interesting bunch of questions. Let's start with question number one. So this is by Nishant. I want to know whether the Ramayana or the Mahabharat were contemporary to the Indus Valley civilization. So to answer this question, we need to essentially know the date of the Ramayana and the Mahabharat. We, as of today, don't know when these two episodes, very important and pivotal episodes of Indian history happened. We don't know when they happened. There are a number of claims by various uh, researchers and scholars and uh, historians, etc. But none of these claims has been proven. So we don't know when these things happened. Uh, we can possibly guess a little bit as to when maybe the Mahabharat could have happened, etc. Maybe when the Ramayana could have happened, but we don't really know when it happened. And therefore, we can't really answer this question. We know that the Ramayana seems to have happened during a much earlier phase of Indian history compared to the Mahabharat, which came later but uh, it could either of these could have coincided with the indus valley phase maybe they could maybe maybe they did not uh, we can approximately guess about the ramayan when it could have happened by dating the ram setu if the government would go ahead and take the initiative of dating this man made structure the ram setu then we could get an idea of when the when the ramayan happened and if we could accurately date the sunken city of Dwarka as to when it sank into the ocean, then we could get a rough uh, idea of when the Mahabharat happened. And then based on these dates, we could uh, see whether it coincides with the Indus Valley or Harappan phase or Saraswati River phase of our civilization or not. So as of today, we can't really answer. We know that uh, the Ram Setu is at least 7000 years old, but we don't know exactly when it was constructed. We know that uh, there has been some carbon dating done in the ancient sunken city of Dwarka. They found a piece of wood which was dated to dated uh, to around 8,000 years before today or thereabouts, you know, roughly. So these give us some rough indication, but we don't really have conclusive proof of when these events happened. And there are certain, like I said, lots of claims based on archaeoastronomy, but those are very conflicting claims. And none of those claims has been established beyond doubt. So as of today, we can't say. And therefore, as of today, we don't know. We know the date, the approximate chronology and timeline of the Harappan phase of our civilization. But we can't tally it with the Mahabharata or Ramayana. So as of today, this is one of the unanswered questions of Indian history. And this is something we need to work on understanding more about. Prathamesh asks, can you uh, shed some light on Rakhigari? What is the importance of this site other than the various Indus Valley civilization sites that we know already? So Rakhigari is in uh, northern India, northwestern India, present day Haryana. It's, it's not very far from Delhi, I believe, maybe 100-200 kilometers from Delhi. <clears throat> so that's what it is. And it, it is... Uh, its significance is that it is the largest known archaeological site of the Harappan phase of our civilization. So I don't know its exact area, maybe 500, 600 or more hectares or so, if I am not mistaken, something like that. It's the largest that we know of, and it's also one of the oldest sites. Uh, 
so it's it's uh, it's been uh, excavated partially it's been known for some time there has only been uh, some partial excavation they found some human skeletons there they found a cemetery they also found skeletons from which dna was recovered and some and, and uh, the gen- the genetic analysis of one of those specimens was done uh, so that sheds a little bit tiny bit of light on the uh, ancient indian genetics of that time and there there are a lot of artifacts that you find over there which and um, lots of lots of valuable artifacts etc have been found there and unfortunately many of them have, have been plundered and that's been going on for years and years and I, unfortunately our treasures are being basically sold out you know they are being they are being plundered and sold to various places let me show you an example of what's happening so this is a let me share this this is a news report from uh, I think it's from 2015. Yes, 2015. It says the Rakhigari site is being plundered due to lack of protection. Lack of official protection and plunder of treasure troves hidden underneath by unscrupulous element elements are playing havoc with the 5000 plus year old ancient site. So there is lack of official protection, there is plunder of treasure troves, uh encroachments, illegal uh, sand lifting etc. antiquities being recovered from the site had been sold over the past many years many people own antiquities etc and they're selling it off uh etc i mean that's what's happening over there uh the asi has deployed a watchman at the site who has been transferred two to three times since he was careless and so on so the asi has deployed has has uh, deployed one watchman at this incredibly <laughs> significant historical site so basically the treasure from from the site are being plundered and sold off let me show you some examples of that uh this is if it will load this is an international uh online art auction uh, antiquities auction website in which you can see indus valley and uh, ancient uh, such Uh, artifacts being sold check out the prices 2450 dollars 2450 dollars etc 1850 dollars these are all our ancient artifacts these this is our ancient heritage that is being sold off online so it's already in the hands of these uh, collectors who are now s- selling it off online check it out all of this is our ancient heritage it's being sold off by this is a, obviously a european or american person somebody from the west who is selling it so they have acquired it somehow from either from india or from pakistan or from both so this is our ancient heritage that's being sold off you can see what this is right let me show you another example of this here is another example let's wait it wait for wait for it to load this is called vatican.com and this again here is our ancient heritage from the saptasindhu region i'm not saying it's all from rakhigari i'm not saying it's all from india it's from pakistan as well but some of it is definitely from india this is called vatican.com if you can see my mouse pointer so our heritage is being sold off in this manner online and like the like i showed just now this this plunder has been happening in rakhigari as well for many years so this is the kind of job the archaeological survey of india is doing in protecting our heritage so the rakhigari site is the largest most extensive and one of the oldest and it has uh, incredible amounts of these ancient artifacts this which are very valuable on the online circuit among antiquities collectors and these are being 
sold off in in troves to to various uh, such people in the west who auctioned them off online so that's what's happening and that is what our wonderful asi is doing very unfortunate okay next question this is by chetan why didn't the british loot the treasure of the anantapadmaswami anantapadmanabha swami temple in kerala which is worth which is trillions of dollars in in value what prevented them from doing so i believe they never came to know about this and neither did neither did the turks who had who occupied large parts of india at some at a point in time so i think the uh, the temple authorities the royal family etc whoever was in charge of the temple they successfully uh, managed to prevent the foreigners the foreign occupiers of india from coming to know about the kind of treasures that are there in the temple these vaults had been locked off for centuries i mean you have found lakhs of ancient roman gold coins and and treasure from, from treasures from mesopotamia and and greece and various various other parts of the world so it seems that these uh, valuables had been donated to this temple for thousands of years by people from rome by people from greece by people from mesopotamia as well it seems and by indians who traded with these places and by indians within india as well because india was the richest civilization of all time in antiquity so this has been happening because in the sangam uh, literature this temple is mentioned it's mentioned as a golden temple as a temple whose wall, whose walls are made of gold so that is about 2 and 1/2000 years ago so it was already a extraordinarily wealthy temple 2 and 1/2000 years before today right so it's the, the wealth that this temple has managed to preserve is thousands of years old and they somehow managed to uh, prevent the foreigners from from coming to know about this right and today the indian judiciary has forced the temple to divulge all of its uh, treasures and the i think the local kerala high court tried to put this wealth in the hands of the state government the communist government which was frightening to say the least and it seems that the supreme court has again reinstated control over the temple to the travancore royal family who i think will definitely do a better job so so i think that's the reason why they somehow managed to save the treasures and uh, they prevented anyone from knowing about it and especially the the foreigners right so the value of the wealth is estimated to be at least 1 trillion dollars in, in of worth in today's dollars and there is one vault that is still unopened so that may be even more valuable who knows and uh, so the question is what is to be done with this wealth i think it belongs to the temple it is the donations of the faithful over thousands of years to this temple so i think the temple authorities should decide what is to be done with it i do not want to be it to be used by any form of government whether the state government or the central government who will misuse it as has been done for the past 70 years temple wealth has been stolen for decades in this country and it's been used for secular purposes which we know what what they are so i hope that this treasure is is preserved and it is uh, it is not uh, despoiled right this is from minakshi the gupta dynasty the gupta dynasty came after the mauryans then why do we know more about the mauryans than we know about the guptas that's a good question minakshi so 
it's because uh, our historians our our post independence historians and even uh, the pre independent even the pre independence british historians of india emphasized more about the mauryan dynasty because the the nice thing for them about the mauryan dynasty is that it had this great king ashok so called great king who converted as if there is a conversion from buddhism into uh, from hinduism into buddhism so he converted supposedly after in engaging in this disastrous kalinga war which caused so much death and destruction and 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 um, anguish and misery so he as a hindu went into this war and then after the, seeing the misery he converted to buddhism that's the official line and that's what makes it so attractive to india's post independence nehruvian secular communist marxist historians right who have always tried to portray hinduism as evil and anything that is not hinduism as good so that's why the mauryans are so attractive to them and that's why they have tried to portray ashok they have tried to distort the story of ashok and portray him as some great benevolent noble king who converted after the war actually he there is no first of all there's no conversion from hinduism to buddhism or vice versa right it's the same thing and secondly he he began practicing the precepts of buddhism much before the the, the kalinga war actually happened so that's one thing but they have been lying about it right and the guptas were out and out i mean they basically practiced what is mainstream hinduism not the bodh dharma form of hinduism so the the guptas they themselves were a shining brilliant dynasty they had samudra gupta one of the greatest emperors of all time in india right he was another emperor who who unified the whole of india under one central uh, dominion he ruled from patlaputra so these so if you if you study the history of the gupta empire of the gupta dynasty then it makes hinduism look good right so that's why their uh, contributions and their role in india's history their their very significant role in india's history has always been downplayed you hardly get to read anything about the gupta empire in india's history textbooks and it's always mauryas 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 glorification of the mauryas so it's because of this political agenda that india's marxist historians these nehruvian historians have been uh, have been trying to further and that's still happening right so that is the reason why we are taught about the mauryans but not about the guptas the guptas were a wonderful dynasty very powerful very significant dynasty uh, i think samudra gupta uh, samudra gupta was basically known for uh conquering most of india and he was a very good emperor he was a vigorous campaigner he was an expansionist he defeated all the kings in india more or less right and he did not kill them all he basically allowed them to continue on as his vassals and uh, he is known to have conquered uh, india the indian peninsula southern india indian peninsula and both the oceans the western ocean and the indian uh, and the eastern ocean knew of samudra gupta's glory that is what is recorded about him and his empire stretched from all the way to the east to all, to all the way in the west to afghanistan so he was another very significant emperor as great as any mauryan or or maybe even more right so that's the reason why these uh, agenda driven marxist nehruvian historians do not want the people of uh, people of india to know about the gupta dynasty okay akash asks 
after all, the modern historians in the ASI, for that matter, are tilted towards obscuring and distorting India's real history. Why? This is being done by this being done by Europeans is understandable, but how come they do it? Indian historians do it, and the ASI does it against their own country. Good question. So it basically ties in with the uh, question I answered just a minute ago. Uh, we know why the West does it. Western historians are driven by their Eurocentric Occidentalist uh, agenda, their Orientalist agenda to, sh to portray the East as inferior and less able than the, than the Europeans, right? So we understand, we understand why they do it. Now, why do India's historians do this? Well, there are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, Nehru, our, our great, magnificent Prime Minister, Shri Jawaharlal Nehru, he wrote this history of India. It was called The Discovery of India or something like that. I have never read the book, unfortunately. I have read many books, but I have not read that book. So in which, in this book, uh, Mr. Shri Nehruji uh, describes the history of India from the very beginning to the very end, apparently. But on various occasions, he expressed his disdain for Hinduism and for Hindu temples and all that. So it was very clear what sort of uh, cultural uh, affinities he had, right? His affinities were basically anti-Hindu and that becomes basically anti-Indian. So the agenda of the historians under his regime was to distort the history of India and make Hinduism look bad and weak and powerless and evil and oppressive and backward and primitive and, and casteist and misogynistic and, and you know, you know the rest, right? So that's what they have, they tried to do by manipulating the history in the textbooks and portraying India's history in a certain fashion. That's number one. Now, after Sri Nehru passed away to our eternal regret, uh, the, the regimes that followed his regime continued the very same thing. And later on, unfortunately, the Marxists or the communists were put in charge of India's academic, uh, uh, India's history textbooks and the entire academic system. And the agenda of these people is very much the same. It's even more vitriolic. It's even more vicious. They essentially want to eradicate all traces of Indian culture. They will start with Hinduism. When Hinduism is gone, they'll go on to Buddhism. Eventually, they want to introduce foreign cultures into India. That, that is the ultimate objective because Marxists are for sale. Okay, every Marxist has a price. They act as agents of various powers, internal, external, you can think, I mean, we know all, we all know what that is. So their agenda is to divide and, and, and destroy. And therefore they have gone even further in doing this. Today, every academic department in this country, whether it's the humanities, whether it's the IITs too, is infested with these Marxists. The Even the IITs in India are full of these humanities departments, right? And these are basically Marxist snake pits. So their agenda is very simple to divide the country on, on the basis of all kinds of uh, distorted uh, versions of history and distorted sociology, etc. And that's why they have engaged in doing this. So they have basically, uh, after the 70s or something like that, they have written all of India's history textbooks. If you see the authors of the NCERT, etc. textbooks, most of them are Marxists. And that's why they have been distorting history. And also, you cannot be a historian in India unless you 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 get on with this uh, with this program, right? You you will never be allowed to be an academic 
of any repute or any you you will not be able to uh, be get any promotions etc in the academic system unless you go along with this agenda and again uh, these people are given stipends and and various inducements from abroad we know that very well the, every single indology department in the west is essentially anti hindu and they give various in, inducements etc to these indian academics so if you get with the program then you will get to go on foreign trips and and go to travel business class and stay in three star or four star hotels in the west etc and you will be made to look like you are a successful academic and a and an eminent historian so these are the reasons why these people have been doing this for decades it's still happening nothing has been done to stop this rot the worst thing is that even the iits indian institutes of technology are spending a significant amount of their budget on these humanities departments and if you look at the professors in these humanities humanities departments and the kind of research these people are indulging in it's all along the same anti india anti hindu lines so that's what's happening in this country and we are funding that with our taxpayer money isn't that nice Aditya asks why are indian philosophies neglected from the mainstream philosophy and in india despite the fact that it had every topic like epistemology ontology psychology metaphysics physics etc this is an excellent question sir so you are absolutely right indian philosophy has been totally neglected in india's uh, philosophy curriculum you go to any philosophy department in india and you see the curriculum they'll teach you about plato about aristotle about kant hegel hume they will teach you gandhian philosophy whatever the hell that is they'll teach you about jiddu krishnamurti they will teach dalit philosophy whatever that is they'll teach you about the frankfurt school about critical theory about feminist uh, philosophy etc but they won't teach you anything significant about indian philosophy and indian philosophy is way older and way richer than all of this right and these schools of western philosophical thought have been borrowing from indian philosophy for centuries without ever acknowledging the fact that they are borrowing from us right so there are indian philosophy is vast it is it is enormous there are so many schools of thought at least seven uh, major significant schools of thought and we just don't know about them we think everything comes from the west let me tell you a little bit about indian philosophy so you have seven eight nine schools of indian philosophical thought major and there are way more uh, subsidiary subsidiary schools and other schools so the nine major ones are charvaka jain uh, bodha nyaya vaisheshik sankhya yoga mimamsa and vedanta these are these are nine major schools so charvaka is materialism it says that perception is the only valid source of knowledge the material world is the only reality the existence of god is a myth the vedas are false and wrong and the highest aim of life is the enjoyment of the greatest amount of pleasure so this is pure materialism this is charvaka it is one of the major schools of thought of indian philosophy it is part of hinduism so this is an atheistic school of thought it is part of hinduism then you have jaina the jaina philosophy which rejects the charvaka view 
that perception is the only source of knowledge. Jaina says that inference and testimony are also valid sources. The Jaina school of thought comes from 24 Tirthankars, of whom the 23rd was Parshwanath and the 24th, the last one, was Vardhaman Mahavir. So the Jainath school of thought believes in the believes in the existence of souls. It says souls exist. Humans, animals, plants, microorganisms, even dust grains have souls, but not every soul is equally conscious. Some are more conscious, some are less conscious. And according to the Jaina school of thought, the aim of existence is of liberation. Liberation by removing all the accumulated karmas of, of the different uh, incarnations by following the teachings of the Tirthankars, the liberated saints. And the Jaina school also is an atheistic school of thought because it rejects the existence of God. Then you have Bodh philosophy. Bodh philosophy is about the four noble truths. Number one, there is misery in life. Number two, there is a cause of misery. Number three, there is a cessation of misery. And number four, there is a path that leads to the cessation of misery. And this is the so-called the, the eightfold noble path of Buddhism. In Buddhism, the aim of existence is the cessation of misery, the cessation of the cycle of rebirths. It is to attain enlightenment or nirvana. Then you have Nyaya, which is a school of thought that owes its existence to the great sage Gautama. This is a realistic philosophy based on logic. There are four separate sources of true knowledge, Pratyaksha, Anuman, Upamana and Shabda. It says that the self, the Atma is distinct from the mind and from the body. And again, the ultimate aim is the liberation of the soul. And Nyaya believes in the existence of God. Then you have Vaisheshik, which owes its origin to the great sage and scientist Kanada. So according to Vaisheshik, there are, there are seven categories of substances, nine kinds of substances, four kinds of atoms, which are invisible, indestructible particles of matter. And therefore, the Vaisheshik school of philosophy is the first quantum theory. According to this theory, the mind is eternal. It's infinitely small like an atom. So there is a quantum of mind as well. And the ultimate aim again is the liberation of the, of the soul. And according to this theory, God exists. Then you have Sankhya, which is dualistic realism, which owes its existence to the sage Kapil. You have Yoga, which owes its existence to Patanjali. Right? You have Mimansa, which owes its existence to Jaimini. It is based on the Vedas which is again an, an atheistic school of thought, right? It says that whatever the Vedas command one to perform is dharma and what they forbid is wrong. It says the soul is immortal and eternal, but there is no supreme soul or creator God. It says that the, that the law of karma is the autonomous natural and moral law that rules the world. And finally, you have Vedanta, which arises from the Upanishads. It's considered to be the culmination of Vedic thought. According to Vedanta, there is a supreme person who permeates the entire universe and yet remains beyond the universe. So as you can see, these are different models of the universe. These are different theories. These are so, uh, so detailed. And, and, and these, these are vast schools of thought. You can spend an entire lifetime just researching one. And that is the entirety of Indian philosophy and there is much more beyond it. So it is, it is incredible that Indian 
universities, colleges, etc. do not teach about this in any detail. There is some cursory reference to these things, but unfortunately, none of this is taught, taught in any detail. And in Indian philosophy, uh, like I said, these are different models of the universe. These are different theories, proper theories, philosophical theories. Unfortunately, Indian philosophy stopped evolving 1000 years ago with the destruction of our great indigenous universities. And today in India's modern colonized universities, they teach Western philosophy. So that's a great tragedy. I wish this were to change sometime soon. Antriksh asks, what are your views on Bal Gangadhar Tilak's Arctic home theory and the connection of Orion to the Vedas? So this uh, Arctic home theory, I think it was published in the early, very early 20th century, maybe 1901, 1904, something like that. So this theory was uh, by, like you said, it, it was based on the evidence and the information and the knowledge that was available in the 19th century. And based on this information, he came up with this idea, this theory, this hypothesis that Indians originated in the Arctic Circle. Now, with the evidence that we have today, it is it is clear that this is entirely incorrect, right? So this is an outdated theory. It's an obsolete theory and it's an incorrect theory. It doesn't mean that Mr. Balangadhar Tirak was a, 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 was a bad scholar. It just means that the information he had at his disposal was incorrect. It was 19th century information. Today we have much more information. We have much better information. We have scientific information from, from a variety of, of fields, from, from genetics, from archaeology, from, from geology, and, and many other and many other fields, right? So we know better today. So that theory is irrelevant today. We don't even need even need to discuss it. It is part of the history of history, right? So that's an incorrect theory. It has no relevance today. Krishna asks, please tell about India's historical ties with Balochistan. What relations did we have? Did India ever face an invasion from Balochistan? So talking about India's historical ties with Balochistan is like talking about India's historical ties with Gujarat or India's historical ties with, with uh, Orissa or India's historical ties with Kashmir. You can't have historical ties with yourself. Balochistan has been for 10,000 years plus it's been a part of India. Right, it is part of the uh, the Saptasindhu region, the westernmost extreme of the Saptasindhu region, and there are there there have been found uh, these Harappan era settlements in Balochistan as well. So it is historically a part of India. So what do I talk about our our ties with ourselves? Right. So it is the basically the westernmost extremity of Jambudweep, the ancient Indian continent or the Indian subcontinent. And the people who live there today are very much Indian by ethnicity. They're Indian by culture. The religion is different. That's the only thing. Uh, if you look at their, their language and their, their uh, traditions and culture, it is closest to, to the people of Sindh and Gujarat and Rajasthan. So they are essentially the same people as the people of Sindh and Gujarat and Rajasthan. So that's what it is. It's the same country. It's the same land. It's the same people. It's the same ethnicity. It's the same culture. It's an accident of history that Balochistan is temporarily not part of India. It will soon again be part of India. 
reasonably soon. I am confident of that. Okay, while new studies proving that Ravan's Lanka existed, proving that Ravan's Lanka existed somewhere near the Maldives and not present-day Sri Lanka, how do we find Ram Setu and how to contradict the existence of present-day Setu, which is made of limestone not present anywhere in the vicinity of hundreds of kilometers there? Hmm. Interesting question you have asked, sir. So I am not aware of any study that proves the existence of Lanka anywhere except in Sri Lanka. What, what is proof? So you are saying it's somewhere near the Maldives. So have we found any island near the Maldives? That's question number one. Question number two is, have we identified that island unequivocally as the ancient Lanka? So the answer to question number one is no, we have not found any island near the Maldives. Two, if we have not found any island near the Maldives, how do we? How can we even identify that as the uh, Lanka of, of the Ramayan? I am aware of certain individuals who have claimed, who have made the claim that uh, Sri Lanka is not the historical Lanka of the Ramayan. Maybe it exists somewhere else. Has Have any of these claims been proven? No. Absolutely not. I think it is preposterous to, to say that uh, it has been proven. I'm not trying to make this a reflection on you, but I am saying that it, it, is completely it is completely incorrect to say that such a claim has been proven. A claim is proven when there is independent corroboration and verification of that claim. So what needs to be done to prove such a claim is that an independent team of scholars, scientists, researchers need to examine the evidence or the logic behind this claim and agree with it. Independent teams of researchers. Has anyone done this? I, I, I don't think anybody has. I am aware of the fact that nobody has. So this claim is completely unproven. And as far as I can see, it is unfounded. Okay. So from my perspective, there is only one Lanka, which is the present day Sri Lanka. And, I, and there is clearly a Rama Setu there. So we need to be careful about what we construe as proof and we need to be careful, careful about not taking a claim made by one individual as the gospel truth. Any claim has to be proven, has to be confirmed independently by independent teams of researchers in a scientific manner. It has to be proven with science. Okay. And therefore this... Uh, and therefore, I cannot agree with I, I cannot agree with this uh, this theory that some other Lanka exists somewhere and it has been proven. It has not been proven. Such claims, if they exist, they have not been corroborated by anybody at all. So this is where we are with regards to this question. As far as I, uh, the best from the best evidence that we have today, from the best information, from the, from the best knowledge, the best data that we have, there is only one Lanka, which is Sri Lanka. This is by Vishal. Gandhi ji propounded the principle of non-violence throughout his life, but he considered it a duty of Indians to fight for the Brits, for the, for the British in World War One and other wars. This conflicts the very idea of non-violence. My views on this. You are right. 
this does come into conflict with the very idea of non-violence. I mean, Mr. Gandhi expected Indians to not resist the British through violence, but he expected the people of India to to take up arms, weapons, and go to distant shores on behalf of the British occupiers of India and fight for them and die for them. So this is Mr. Gandhi's non-violence, right? I mean, is there any logic in this? Is there any moral consistency? What what is the principle behind this? Is there any principle behind this? Is there any ethic? Is is there any ethical principle behind this? I don't see any. And there are many many other contradictions to Mr. Gandhi, right? He spoke. He, he propounded nonviolence. He insisted on nonviolence, and yet he forced the Congress Party to accept. Uh, Shri Nehru as the first Prime Minister of India, even though they had voted for Mr. Sardar Patel. So even though there was a democratic election within the Indian National Congress, and they unanimously or near unanimously voted for Sardar Vallabhbhai Patel as the first Prime Minister of India, Mr. Gandhi threatened them, threatened to go on a fast until death, and therefore forced them by this means to reverse their decision and accept Mr. Nehru as the Prime Minister, even though Mr. Nehru did not get any votes. So isn't this an even worse form of violence? This is moral violence, isn't it? So these are my views on Mr. Gandhi. It is time to re-examine Mr. Gandhi's life and career. There are many questions about Mr. Gandhi's life. Uh, Let me ask a few questions. What was Mr. Gandhi doing in South Africa during the two decades plus that he was there? When you are in a foreign country, you need a source of income. Was he practicing as a lawyer? Did he, How many court cases did Mr. Gandhi fight in South Africa? And what was his income from these court cases? Or was somebody else funding his stay in South Africa? How did he acquire a big farm, a big commune in which he uh, had many people who lived there? And how, who paid for this farm? Who paid for these people's sustenance? Who paid for everything there? What is the source of all this income? Why did Mr. Gandhi never reveal or disclose or divulge these sources of income? And when Mr. Gandhi came back to India, on whose behalf did he come back to India? And who parachuted him to the leadership of the Indian National Congress almost overnight? How did that happen? So there are many questions, unanswered questions about Mr. Gandhi. We need to critically re-examine Mr. Gandhi's career in its entirety. We need to go through every word that he wrote. And he he wrote hundreds of thousands of words in writing. These are all available online. We need people to go through this, to sift through these words and to uncover the real Mr. Gandhi. It is high time we do this. Okay. Our freedom struggle is most of the time non-violent, but in the West, all other countries used violent ways to get freedom. Why did we not use any violent ways to get freedom? And we might also have got freedom early through violence. You are right, sir. So Mr. Gandhi came back to India in the second decade of the 20th century. I don't remember the exact year. Maybe 1915 to 1920, thereabouts. I think probably closer to 1915. So at that time, within a very short period of time, Mr. Gandhi became the undisputed leader of the Congress Party. And he was viewed as a saint almost overnight in India. Now, what if he had commanded the people of of India, go out on the streets and kill the British. Kill every single British person you see. It doesn't matter if you die. You're going to die anyway. Your only job 
of you 300 million Indians go out on the street, you kill one British person, then go home. So if 300 million people, 300 million Indians went out on the streets with the objective of just killing one British person each, then every single foreign occupier of India would have been dead within 24 hours. I know some Indians would have died, maybe a few thousands, maybe a hundred thousand, maybe a million Indians would have died. And yet every single occupier would have died. And it would have saved millions of Indian lives because they killed so many millions of Indians after 1920 in a variety of ways, including artificial famines. So my point is Mr. Gandhi, by not resorting to violence, by not allowing the people of India to resort to violence, delayed India's independence by at least two decades. Right? So that, that's the thing. And my question is, whom does non-violence serve? What is the purpose of violence? I mean, when you have a conflict in your family, let's say with an aunt or an uncle or siblings, you obviously don't resort to violence. That is not the right way to do it. And even within the country, when you have a conflict within your country, you don't resort to violence. These are your own people. So it is morally and ethically wrong to resort to violence when it comes to your own family or your own country people, because these are your own people. They are your own blood. You need to resolve it amicably through non-violent means. But when it comes to the foreign occupiers who have intruded into your country, conquered your country, occupied your country illegally and are plundering its wealth and killing millions of your country people, it is completely justified to go and kill them all. And therefore, my question is, whom did Gandhi's non-violence serve? That is the question I would ask you, my friends. Go ahead and, and comment about this. Whom do you think Gandhi's non-violence served? Did it serve the people of India? Did it serve certain sections of India's population? Did it serve Mr. Gandhi himself? Or did it serve the foreign occupier? Akash asks, if anyone asks me who or what was responsible for freeing India, what shall be my answer? Because as far as I know, the whole credit is given to Gandhi. While I think instead of this, his credit is due on breaking India. So if not him, then who? Let's understand what happened during, British, during the British occupation of India. They wiped out every royal family. They installed puppets in their place. I'm not saying every single member of every single royal family died. Many of them still survive today. They are living in poverty, etc. The real royalty of India was, was marginalized, if not wiped out. Right? That is number one. The British stole the almost the entirety of India's wealth. India's GDP was 33% of that of the entire world. By the time the British, British left, India had 2% of the world's GDP. Right? India's life expectancy was less than 30 years by the time the British left. And before the British came to India, even during the Turkic occupation, most Indians had land. They had their ancestral lands that had been passed on from generation to generation for thousands of years. The British deprived every Indian of their land. They instituted the riot-worry system in which every in, in which the land was confiscated from all Indians and every Indian farmer and every Indian industry was destroyed and every Indian, the vast majority of Indians, more than 200 million Indians, were forced to indulge in subsistence farming 
either either growing uh, food crops or cash crops and so basically they stole the land of every indian and they gave these lands to various zamindars and various british stooges after independence these lands were not restored to any of the indians who lost their lands to the british and these zamindars and these people who benefited from british largesse they are the big industrialists the hereditary industrialists who still are wealthy today many of these old industrial families in india owe everything to the british and the people of india who lost everything to the british they were not given any justice after independence they were not given the lands back in my opinion upon the stroke of midnight on 15th of august every indian should have been given a parcel of land of this country that's what makes them citizens everybody had land before the british occupation today how many people actually own land very few very few people in india actually own land if you see, if you if somebody were to compile the statistics the statistics would be shocking so most indian citizens don't own land in india and a small number of people own great amounts of land the largest non government land owner in india is guess who it's the catholic church so why were these injustices not redressed upon independence these injustices have been allowed to persist the people who benefited from british occupation of india they are still benefiting from it so did we really get independence that's my question we are still following british laws the laws that the british wrote we still have a foreign constitution which is not indian in nature or origin the institutions that govern us and rule upon us are the institutions the british made and there has been no justice land reforms nothing nobody has been given the land they lost or their ancestors lost so where is this independence that we talk about the independence that we are supposedly enjoying is an illusion we have never become independent we are continuing the same system we are still speaking the same language if i were to speak in hindi half my audience would disappear because half of india doesn't understand hindi south of the southern parts of india because hindi is almost like a foreign language for them because it is so urduized and persianized and arabized and that's why we have to rely upon a foreign language to unify this country as of now so where's the independence there's no independence we are still trying to decolonize independence happens occurs only when you decolonize and you undo the policies that the british had implemented in india so that's never happened so i don't really believe that we have ever got independence from british rule we are still continuing the same system right so yes gandhi gets the credit for breaking india so does so does jinnah to a small part so does the congress party to a great extent they also get a great deal of uh, credit credit for uh, slowing down the progress of india after 47 but in my opinion india has never really become independent we are still colonized in a variety of ways especially mentally we still see ourselves as inferior to this british or to the westerners or or to to people who have a lighter skin tone than ours so we need to change our mentality and we need to find a way to reform the system and it it, it I, we are tired of gradual incremental reforms we need revolutionary reforms to unleash the real india so that's what we await we await real independence
Rakesh asks the history of slavery in India. The history of slavery is in India is very short. It begins with the Turkic invasions of India, the Turkic occupation of India, and later the British occupation of India. It ends with the withdrawal of the British more or less from India. Indian culture has never practiced slavery ever. Even the Greek sources from 2000 years ago say that the Indians don't practice slavery. There's not a single slave in India. Every other foreign source corroborates this fact that Indians did not ever practice slavery. In India's history textbooks today, you will you will be taught that India had slavery because the Marxist historians or historians interpret the Sanskrit word dasa to be meaning slave. Dasa means servant, not slave, but they have translated it as slave. Right? So that is the reason why Indians believe there was slavery in ancient India. When somebody, when a king had a number of dasa, it means they had servants. Servants are paid people, right? You have public servants today. Are the slaves? Hell no. So, so that's the thing. So Indians never practiced slavery. Slavery is abhorrent in Indian culture, in any of the schools of thought of, of whether you call it Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, whatever. Slavery is unacceptable in any form of Indian culture. It is the Turks who brought it into India and later the British who, who institutionalized it in a variety of ways by calling it indentured servitude or whatever. So it is the foreigners who brought slavery into India and it is with their departure that slavery ended. Siddhant asks, how come Bihar from being one of the most prosperous and advanced regions of ancient Bharat became one of the poorest states of the country. You are right. Bihar is the seat of a number of ancient empires. Magadha was Bihar, basically. Uh, Patliputra was the capital of Magadha. Patliputra was the capital of the Mauryan Empire. Patliputra was the capital of the Shunga Empire. It was the capital of the Guptas. It is one of the most significant cities in the entire history of India. It was the capital of India for ages. And the region which is now called Bihar was one of the most prosperous regions of India, as was Bengal, as was everything else, right? So how did it, did it go? How did it decline from where it was to where it is? It all happened with the Turkic invasions. Bihar was the seat of learning, was one of the major seats of learning. The great university of Nalanda was in Bihar. So it is with the destruction of Nalanda by the Turks, by the burning of this great library and the destruction of various other uh, universities and viharas, and the destruction of temples and the various massacres that happened, that the decline of Bihar happened, as, as did the decline of the entirety of India. And it is after independence that the so-called cow belt region of India, which is UP and Bihar, was increasingly marginalized by the Nehruvian regime, because that is the heartland of India, the Ganga Valley, etc. And Bihar also is essentially uh, an extension of that. So it is this uh, disdain for the uh, for the ancient heartland of Indian culture that led the Nehruvian regime to marginalize the, this region. And that's why Bihar has been for generations been neglected and that's why it is in the state it is today. One hopes it soon regains its, its, its former glory. It's one of the greatest regions of India. It's one of the greatest cultural seats of India. The people, because of poverty, they may not think very much of themselves today, but they had brilliant and great ancestors. So I hope to see Bihar rise again and rise again soon.
Akash asks, Sher Shah Suri is portrayed as a great king in our textbooks that he fought against the invader Babur and made the Grand Trunk Road, etc. How much of it was for India and how much was it for himself? So this uh, individual, Sher Shah Suri, well, one thing that goes for him is that he was not a Turk. He was an Indian. He was from the Suri uh, clan, which is a North Indian clan. It's uh, You find the Suri surname in Punjab as well as in Afghanistan. Excuse me. So depending on how we look at Sher Shah, he was either Afghan, Pashtun, or Punjabi, or even Bihari, or whatever. But he was Indian. He was native. So that's one thing that, that goes for him. Now this guy, Sher Shah Suri, was in power in, in North India, in Northern India, for five years. Five years. And it is his arch enemy, Humayun, who praised him to the high heavens. That he was the... Uh, he was a teacher of kings and all that, that sort of thing. So this guy, Sher Shah, he did some reforms which are glorified to the high heavens in Indian textbooks. Uh, he repaired an ancient road, the so-called Grand Trunk Road. He did not make that road, FYI. That is a very ancient road. It was, it, it was in existence during Chandragupta Maurya's time. It was called the Uttarapath in, in India, in ancient uh, Indian history. So this road stretched from the uh, borderlands of India to the east, to the from the Myanmar, Myanmar border in the east, all the way into Afghanistan and into Central Asia. So that was the Uttarapath that was a major road in India during the time of Chandragupta Maurya. Chandragupta Maurya had maintained this road very well. There were innumerable rest houses and inns and even dispensaries for human beings as well as for animals along this road. Everything was free, FYI, for all the travelers. So it's a very ancient road. Sher Shah may have merely repaired some portions of this road. And there is a very dark side to Sher Shah Suri as well. In his nearly five years of rule, he perpetrated a number of atrocities, many massacres in the region of Malwa, east of Gujarat. He uh, treacherously... Uh, committed a massacre of, of, of Rajputs. There was this Rajput king, who small chieftain who had submitted to Sher Shah's suzerainty. And despite submitting to this, this guy's suzerainty, Sher Shah massacred this uh, small chieftain along with 10,000 men, women and children. Uh, it was a horrific incident and many of the women and children were taken as slaves and you can guess what happened to them. So that is the kind of individual Sher Shah Suri was. He was as brutal and as inhumane as any of the Turks. So I do not see any greatness in this individual. Whatever reforms he may have done may, may, may be good in the eyes of the Marxist historians, not in the eyes of any civilized or decent human being. Sher Shah Suri was a monster. That's what he was. Gargi asks, Pranam Gargi, is it true that before the Abrahamic invasions and terror established by the same in Bharat, the Vivah Sanskar was performed in broad daylight, unlike today during or after midnight, especially in the states of Bihar, UP, Jharkhand, especially basically North India, Northern India. Also, if possible, can you give an idea about the loss Bihar, Magad faced in terms of wealth and power and intellectually and culturally? Due to invasions, was there any massive resistance on the part from Bharat? So let me answer the first question, the first half. Is it true that before the invasions, especially the Turkic invasions, 
were weddings conducted in broad daylight in northern India? It's a very good question. So, you know, in the British Isles, uh, in, in old days, maybe 800, 900,000 years ago, there was this custom. So, first of all, Scotland and Ireland had at various points in history been conquered and occupied by England. Scotland and Ireland are separate, distinct culturally, etc. from England. England was the big bully, the big oppressor. So at various points in time, England occupied Scotland and Ireland and they would uh, install lords to govern various regions of Scotland and Ireland. These lords were basically brutes. They were, they were, they were brutal people, really evil people. So there was this custom. There was a despicable custom in this in, in that these English lords practiced. So whenever a Scottish lady would get married, the local English lord would take her with him on the day of her marriage and return her to her husband the next day. He would bless the marriage by doing so. And this was called prima nocta in, in uh, Latin, first night. In French, it was called le droit du seigneur, the, uh, the right of the Lord. So this is a despicable custom the British practiced. And the Turks in India practiced something just as despicable. But in India, they would indulge in this bride hunting on the, on the day of her marriage. And they would not just abduct the bride, they would also kill the bridegroom and various members of the wedding party, etc. And you can guess what happens to the, to the, to the bride. So this is the reason why weddings in northern India had to be conducted in the dead of night in complete secrecy and very quickly. So after midnight and thereabouts. And over the years, decades and centuries, this became the regular custom, the regular practice. It became tradition. And that's why it still persists today. They have forgotten the reason why this was instituted in the first place. Today, there is no need to conduct weddings in the dead of night. So this is how it happened. It has a very, very sordid uh, origin. Very, very unfortunate. So that's the reason why weddings are conducted in the dead of night in northern India. To answer your other questions, uh, yes, like I said, Bihar did face a great deal of loss in the terms of wealth, in terms of education and culture. All the universities were destroyed, the Viharas, the Mahaviharas, uh, the universities, temples, etc., so yeah, that's what happened in Bihar. And as with every other part of India, the people of Bihar did resist heroically. But here we are today. So that's your answer, Gargi. Anusha asks, Some say that Subhash Chandra Bose had dictatorship ideas for India. Is it true? I do believe that he did... Uh, state this on at least one occasion that India needed at, at least 20 years of iron-fisted rule of, of one-man dictatorship in order to bring India out of the clutches of uh, colonialism and uh, and poverty and all that. So he did express that opinion. Now, is it right? Is it wrong? Well, who is to judge that? See, Singapore, if we take the example of Singapore, Singapore was under a dictator, Lee Kuan Yew. And he brought Singapore out of poverty. He transformed it from a third world country to a first world country in just one generation, in 20 years. So he did exactly what Subhash Chandra Bose said, but he did it in Singapore, 
not in India. And if you look at places like China and Vietnam, they went their own way. They went the communist dictatorship way, right? And they refused to follow any of the guidance, the guidance given by Western economists out of spite and out of disdain and out of hatred for them. And see the direction that China went in and see the direction that Vietnam went in. They have both progressed immensely economically. So we, we, we have to understand that sometimes dictatorship does work, especially when you have a country that is in the dumps, that has been destroyed by colonialism and, and a country that is deep into poverty. Sometimes a strong man rule does work wonders. So you have a number of examples. You have Singapore, you have China, you have Vietnam that have risen out of poverty very quickly after uh, dictatorial rule. And even South Korea is another example. You had a one-party rule there too, a one-man rule for, for many years. So it is entirely possible that Subhash Chandra Bose, had he come to power, had he succeeded, and had he instituted a dictatorship on over India for 20 years, it would have brought India out of poverty much faster. So Subhash Chandra Bose was very, was very clear about what kind of government he wanted in India. He wanted a liberal government, a one-party rule, a one-man rule. He wanted complete equality. Everybody should have the same rights. He wanted complete freedom of religion and culture. So everybody can practice any religion and culture they want. And he wanted massive industrialization, massive economic development. So he, in a way espoused similar ideas as Nehru, massive industrialization, etc. But Nehru botched it up very badly. Nehru was incompetent. Bose could have been much better. So I agree that Subhash Chandra Bose did intend to become a dictator in India. And I don't think, I don't know if it was a bad thing. It, I'm sure anything would have been better than what Nehru did in India. It's all hypothetical, but yeah, so this is, this is true. Yes. Okay, about um, Prithviraj Chauhan. Prithviraj Chauhan defeated Muhammad Ghori in the first battle of Tarayan. But he was defeated, he was eventually defeated in the second battle. Can you please explain the reasons behind this? Well, okay, just a minute. So the first battle of Tarayan happened, I think, in 1191. Forgive me if the date is wrong, but I think it's 1191. So this is a battle in which this, this fellow, Muhammad Ghori, uh, invaded India from the northwest. He was based in Ghazni at the time, in Gandhar, which is now Afghanistan. And the major king in India was Prithviraj Chauhan. And he, they, these two met outside of Tarauri, present-day Tarauri in Haryana. And Prithviraj Chauhan smashed the Afghan army and for reasons known only to him, he allowed Muhammad Ghori to return to Afghanistan. And the very next year, in less than a year or maximum one year, the battle happened again. This guy went back to Afghanistan. He was wounded. He went back to Afghanistan. He recovered. He built another army. And this time he knew how the Rajputs fought. So they met again in the same location on the same battlefield. And this time the army of India was defeated. And thus began the infamous uh, 
Gori rule over India, the Gorid dynasty, which eventually uh, spread all the way, uh, stretched all the way to Bangladesh, present-day Bangladesh. So why did the Indian army lose? So it's because Prithviraj Chauhan, for whatever reason, decided to forgive Muhammad Ghori and allow him to he allowed him to go back. This was the stupidest decision any Indian ruler has taken in in and one of the most significant decisions, one of the most infamous decisions any Indian ruler has taken in the past 1,000 years. And please do not construe this as anti-Rajput sentiment or anti-Chauhan sentiment. I cannot be anti-Rajput or anti-Chauhan. I am speaking as an Indian. Prithviraj Chauhan made a disastrous blunder. It was a very stupid decision. When you have an enemy who is intent on destroying you, destroying your country, enslaving your people, and you have defeated him, and he is at your mercy, how on earth can you let this individual go back scot-free? As the leader, as the ruler of, la- of a large part of India, Prithviraj Chauhan's, Prithviraj Chauhan's duty was to serve his nation and his people and put their interests above any ideology or, 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 or chivalry that be, he may have had. His personal belief about forgiving the enemy is not important. The long-term future and prosperity of his people and of his country was more important. And he betrayed his people and he betrayed his country. Right? And do you even know what happened to his wife Sanyogita after he died? Do you even know what happened to the women folk of his of his land after he died? So Prithviraj Chauhan betrayed his people by allowing Muhammad Ghori to go back after he defeated Muhammad Ghori. And that that basically was the turning of the tide when it comes to the to the uh, Turkic etc invasions of India. So that is the reason why Prithviraj Chauhan lost the second battle because he displayed all his tactics and strategies to Ghori in the first battle then allowed him to go back. So Ghori came back with with all the knowledge of how to defeat Prithviraj this time. Harsh asks, you had called all the surviving royal families British puppets? Were Maharana Pratap Singh's descendants puppets as well? Okay, maybe I did not express myself clearly enough. Okay, if there is a case, I apologize. So here is what I meant. What I said or what I meant to say is this. In 1857, we had the first war of independence in the against the British occupation of India. So all the... Uh, this was basically almost a nationwide war. Many of the royal families in India fought against the British. Eventually, as we know, the British prevailed. And all of these royal families who fought against them were wiped out. They were either all killed or those who managed to escape were, were basically marginalized forever. Their descendants may still survive today, but they lost everything they had. And then the British installed puppet kings in their place. These are the so-called princely states that we know of. And and some of these royal families may not have fought the British. There are certain uh, places like Baroda, for example, or, or, or Mysore. I'm just giving some random examples. I'm not sure it's entirely accurate. But there are some royal families that did not fight the British and cooperated with the British, either willingly or against their will. 
So those were allowed to continue. And the ones who fought were either wiped out or they basically vanished into obscurity. So what I mean to say is that those who cooperated with the British are the puppets. Those who were installed by the British after 1857 are the puppets. Those who are today's princely states or or who are the descendants of those princely state families today are the descendants of puppets. The original royal families were not puppets. They are the ones who fought and died for India. And their, some of their descendants do, do survive today. They are the descendants of India's heroes. So not everyone was a puppet, sir. Maharana Pratap was not a puppet. His descendants are not puppets. The ones who cooperated with the British, they are the puppets. And the ones who were installed by the British are the puppets. The others are not puppets. They are the descendants of heroes. I hope that clarifies this matter. Okay, one more question. Raj asks, India now wants a permanent seat in the UN. Why did former PM Nehru reject it? So uh, the great Prime Minister Shri Nehru, yes, you are right. He rejected an offer that was made to India. It was not just one offer. There were two offers made to India. The first offer was made by the United States and the USSR together in 1950. They offered a permanent seat on the UN Security Council to India. And our uh, great statesman like Prime Minister Shri Jawaharlal Nehruji in a fit of magnanimity said that I India does not want this. Please give it to China instead. We will not do this at the expense of China. China needs to be put first. So the matter went to went to rest for some time. Then once again in 1955, the United States and the USSR again together came together and offered once again us a permanent seat on the UN Security Council to India. And once again, our great Prime Minister Shri Nehruji rejected it outright. He said, not at the cost of China. China has to become a permanent member first. Then we will consider, we will think about it. And that's how China became one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. And today India is forced to, well, sort of plead its case in various circles worldwide. So that is how our great Prime Minister Nehruji in a great uh, act of foresight apparently decided to deprive his country and his people of this of this uh, position on the UN Security Council that would have served India so much. So it makes one wonder whom did Mr. Nehru actually serve. So yeah, so that's about it for today's questions thus far. Let me take some live questions some live chat questions. Let me see. What are you guys asking me? Let me remove that question first. Here we are. Okay. Raja Ram Mohan Roy, Karnapali Sri Shrikar asks, I've read that Raja Ram Mohan Roy played a big role in desensitization and changing the education of system, education system of India with Macaulay. 
he has been given undeserving over credit my views so yes i agree that uh, mr ram mohan roy has been glorified to the heavens he actually had very strong anti sanskrit views he had very strong anti hindu views uh, he was buried in england he was not cremated which makes one wonder what as to what his actual religion was and if you read his own letters to the british it's very clear how anti hindu and how anti sanskrit he was i think i will make a separate video in which i show all this in great detail so that there is no uh so there is no ambiguity about this so i agree with you you are absolutely right and i will i think i will put this on my to do list i'll make a video about this a separate video about this shobhajit asks what were the main reasons for india's independence was it a combination of ww2 world war 2 and subhash bose's ina the reason for india's independence was very simple the british had nothing more to gain from india they had extracted and leached everything there was to leach out of india all the reserves of diamonds were gone all the silver was gone all the gold was gone india had been depleted of every single resource they could imagine of right so there was nothing more to do india's gdp was now less than 2% of the entire world's gdp india was a broken nation india's life expectancy was less than 30 years so there was no point trying to govern such a broken disastrously ravaged country and that's why they 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 implemented their exit strategy and after the second world war they were in no position to govern a territory so far away it was a big burden for them because there was nothing more coming out of india they would have had to actually send something back to india to govern it in uh, in an efficient manner so it was that that caused india's so called independence the second world war did contribute to some extent to this subhash bose's ina did not contribute to it unfortunately i i it is regrettable the kind of uh, treatment that was meted out to the to subhash chandra bose firstly and to the ina soldiers as well but in the grand scheme of things the ina did not really play that much of a role they were defeated in in uh, northeastern india manipur etc sadly regrettably okay let's take a few more questions why is india so diverse that's what aditya asks it's because india is not a nation state india is a civilization state it is a subcontinental subcontinent sized civilization state india has the greatest genetic diversity of any population outside of africa and yet paradoxically the entirety of india's population is still genetically quite uniform that is the paradox of india there is incredible genetic diversity in india and yet there is genetic uniformity and there is a great deal of cultural diversity as well there is a single overarching culture from balochistan to burma from afghanistan to sri lanka and the maldives historically and yet there were so many local manifestations of india's culture because india's culture is so diverse i just spoke about the various schools of thought of indian philosophy there are so many schools of thought of indian philosophy some are agnostic some are atheistic some are materialistic some are deeply Uh, deeply ritualistic some are uh, some are theistic some are scientific 
some are philosophical and spiritual there is everything is accepted in in indian culture for thousands of years and these are the reasons why india is so diverse the same gods and goddesses are worshiped in a variety of ways across india you have durga puja in bengal and you have navratri in gujarat this is this is 2000 kilometers apart nearly and they are they are worshiping the same goddess and celebrating the same goddess in very different ways you have kamakhya devi temple in assam and you have hinglaj mata temple in balochistan they worship the same goddess so far apart thousands of kilometers apart from each other so this is the beauty and the paradoxical beauty of india there is such diversity and yet there is one overarching culture in india isn't that interesting it's a unique place there's no place like india in like india in the world right now sir okay let's take a few questions few more questions christopher asks does india have any alien interactions recorded uh, well none that i know of um i believe there are certain temples that have some alien like uh, carvings or sculptures or something i think i need to watch more of praveen mohan's very interesting channel but as far as i know i may not know enough but as far as i know that we there doesn't seem to be any to my knowledge my knowledge is not perfect so that's what i know okay some more questions bardan lama uh who are the gorkhas and how do they come to india are they different from the nepalese people of nepal etc uh, yeah who are the gorkha people uh the gorkha the gorkha people are a nepalese uh, ethnicity so let's look at the origin of the of the gorkha people i believe they have something to do with bappa rawal and uh, and goraknath the great saint goraknath so i believe that bappa rawal was a great rajput warrior who conquered various uh, a great region in northwestern india punjab parts of afghanistan if i am not entirely mistaken so he was a great warrior a great conqueror he repelled the turkic invasions for some time and restored civilization for some time in northwestern india eventually i think that he and his followers the rajputs went to according to legend they went to the northern part i mean they were the followers of this uh, great saint goraknath so eventually once their work was done i think uh, the great saint goraknath instructed them to go to the northern part of india and settle down there and therefore they went to this part, this northern part of india the newar valley or thereabouts present day nepal region of uh, north of india today they settled down there they intermarried among the locals and they were devotees of the saint goraknath and that's how they came to be known as the gorkhas and their descendants still have that uh, martial tradition the rajputic martial tradition and that's why they are such great warriors the gorkhas so i believe from what i understand according to legend this is the origin of the gorkhas the gorkhas are clearly uh, an indo tibetan people or an a tibeto burman people if i am not 
completely mistaken. But that is the legendary origin of the Gorkhas. So they are Hindus, they are the descendants of Rajputs and the local people, and they are great warriors. And they are definitely people of Nepal, yes. How are they different from the people of Nepal? Well, the whole of India is a mix of various different uh, ethnic groups, and so is Nepal. The Gorkhas are very much Nepalese people. So are the so are the so are the descendants of the Kirata people. So are the Madesi people. They are all Nepalese. There is no such thing as historical Nepal. Nepal came into being in the 18th century through the conquests of uh, of that king Prithvi Narayan Shah. So it's a very new uh, political entity, and so the Gorkhas are definitely very much a part of the. Nepalese population, they are the people of Nepal, yes. Yes, yes, I am aware of this. Uh, I think hundreds of people have tried to tell me this. I am aware of it. I will send in my suggestions to the government of India. And one hopes that it will, well, it will correct what's the, the textbooks, the NCERT textbooks. Let's see what happens. Okay, let's take a few more questions. Okay, I will try and do that, perhaps. Okay, why... Why is the Indian government not trying to retrieve the priceless relics like uh, Nataraja and Kohinoor from the British Museum? It's a good question. It's a good question. Why isn't the Indian government doing this? So here's an interesting anecdote. Yesterday I was on a news channel called News X. It's an Indian news channel. So I was on one of their live telecasts. Uh, recently the, there has been an archaeological finding in Orissa. They have found a 4,000-year-old archaeological site there. So NewsX had invited me to uh, give my opinion about that. So there was this, this uh, government official on the live telecast, a very nice gentleman from Orissa. So he was saying that we have the money, but we don't have time. So we have only been able to do a little bit of excavation because of the pandemic and all that, but we have the money. So I asked this gentleman, if you have the money, why don't you... Why doesn't the Indian government or every Indian state government, why can't they invest in one single world-class museum in each state? Why can't we have at least one, just one, let's say, to start with, one world-class museum in each state in which we can house our, our priceless heritage and display it to the world and display it to our own people in order to increase awareness of our own history and the connection of people with their local history. Why can't we do this? Let me tell you, there is not one single world-class museum in the entire country of India. And we have the money. So why can't we do this? And why can't we retrieve our priceless relics that have been stolen from us illegally, such as the Kohinoor and the Nataraja and, and, and thousands more in England and other countries? Why can't we do it? And this gentleman said that this is a million-dollar question. And he was unable to answer my question. So the fact is that every state government has more than enough money to invest in at least one world-class museum in India in each state. 
and the central government can also fund these the such projects but there is a lack of political will there is a lack of willingness to invest in these things maybe the money has better uses i don't know so this is all about a lack of will there is no there is no will to build museums in india world class museums and there is no will to bring these priceless relics back from the places where they have been kept so it is the fault of the indian government we need to find a way of making them hear us right because the ministry of whatever it is culture is it culture it's a complete non performing ministry i mean what are they doing for india's culture it's a waste of taxpayer money it's a waste of taxpayer money all right let me take one more question Did you hear what I said, sir? I am sure the Mysore Kingdom existed before the Portuguese or before whoever. After the British occupation of India, the Mysore uh, kings, the Wadiars, were allowed by the British to continue as kings. Why was that? Because they paid the price. they agreed to abide by british conditions the british laws and british rules that were imposed upon india by the british if they had opposed the british if they had opposed british policies they would have been wiped out i am sure they were good people many kings were good people but they were forced to bow down to the british and collaborate by the, with the british in order to continue nominally ruling their principalities and therefore these are all puppet kings they were allowed by the british to continue only in exchange for them abiding to the conditions that the british set upon them so yes the wadiars were puppets one more question sir one more let's do it one more This is a good one. Homi Baba's death mystery. So Homi Baba died in a plane crash I think in the Swiss Alps. Do you know where the Swiss Alps are? Let me bring out the map. I haven't brought the brought out the map today so let me bring it out. Okay, let me share the map. Here is the map. Let's go westwards. the swiss alps so i think it is somewhere here in this region south of switzerland near italy near france it's somewhere around here that mr homi baba's plane crashed and no investigation was done into this plane crash this the the wreckage of this plane this this plane crash was not discovered until many decades later because nobody bothered to look into it so the strange thing is that when a plane crashes lots of people die 
and the local government invariably has the duty to go and investigate the plane crash and try and retrieve the wreckage and try and retrieve the bodies for a proper funeral. And that was never done. So there is the very strong possibility that this plane was sabotaged or brought down through artificial means in order to deprive India of what of the person who was its top nuclear scientist at the time. There is a very strong possibility. So even today, the, the exact cause of the plane crash has not been ever determined. So it's a mystery and uh, yeah, it's, it's possibly something that was engineered by a foreign power in order to set back India's nuclear power program. Because that's uh, because India was going ahead with a nuclear program at the time. Okay, I think we are done for today. It's been 90 minutes nearly. So thank you everybody for your questions. It's been great interacting with you. And we will continue next week. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for watching. And I will see you soon. Good night. Good day. Bye.